Good morning. Pray with me, will you? Father, I pray that you would help us to focus now on your word. Thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed your character to us. And we see today how you have revealed your will to us. And I pray, Father, that we would be responsive to your word, that your will for us might be realized in our lives this very week as we live your word out for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have been wondering why we read from Psalm 87. I included that one this week because it is just such a wonderful picture of reaching to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Uh, Listen to it once again, this time from the NIV. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. What, What city is Zion? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. So he's still talking to and about Jerusalem here. But get this. I will record Rahab. Who's Rahab? That's Egypt. I will record Egypt and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. People are coming to him from foreign lands. Philistia, too, and Tyre, along with Cush, and will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. Not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth, a a rebirth. And that takes the foreigner and makes him or her a native-born citizen of the kingdom. Amazing. And that is what he has done for you and me in Christ. We who were alienated from God, who have trusted now in him, have become his own children, his adopted family. And we have in him a new identity. A new identity is a wonderful thing. When God gives a new identity, it changes the trajectory of a life. We saw earlier from Genesis 17, uh, Abram becoming Abraham. A new name, a new identity. He went from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. Or think of another fellow named Jacob. Now, there's a great name. It means cheat. Okay? God gave him a new name too, Israel, one who strives with God. Or how about a Jewish fisherman named Simon? Jesus gave him a new name and a new identity. You are the rock. How about a Pharisee named Saul? He met the risen Christ and became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. When God gives you a new identity, 
identity. It changes the trajectory of your life. Jesus gave his followers one at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Our new identity, salt and light. And that new identity changes our trajectory. We are to become difference makers in the world. So let's consider the two of those, salt and light. First, salt, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. Salt of the earth. Why would Jesus say that we are the salt of the earth? What does salt do? We can think of a number of uses for salt, I'm sure. We sprinkle it on our food to enhance the flavor. Salt brings out the, the, the best in things we put it on. Okay. Uh, it also creates thirst. That can be a good thing. You, you, can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, but you can salt his oats, right? It stings when it gets in a wound. That's not such a good thing. Salt melts ice. We use it all winter long around here, but that doesn't really matter in a land that never gets below freezing. So why did Jesus use that illustration? The primary function of salt in Jesus' day, and I believe the reason that he used it as an illustration, is that salt is a preservative. It's a preservative. It was the refrigeration of the ancient world. In a world without refrigeration, unsalted food would rot. And salt was essential. It's an antibacterial, so it keeps bacteria from breaking down the food and causing it to spoil. So if you're a fisherman in first century Palestine, as soon as you get your catch to shore, you're going to salt it down. Why? Because otherwise you end up with a pile of stinky fish that nobody wants. Salt is common to us. We can buy it at a grocery store for about 30 cents a pound. But it was really valuable to the ancients. It was so valuable, wars were actually fought over salt. Our word salary comes from the same root as the word salt. Soldiers in the Roman army were paid, at least in part, in salt. And that's where we get the phrase, he's worth his salt. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be salt for the earth. We are the preservative of the world, put here to keep the world from decaying away. Now, how do we do that? Well, we begin by just being there, being there, getting out there, infiltrating a decaying world. Our presence alone can have a preserving effect. You ever notice how your just being there in a group of people sometimes changes things? When I was in seminary, uh, I served as a chaplain in the National Guard, and it happened more than once that I'd be standing with a group of soldiers, and one of them, as they were talking together, would say something really unsavory. And a couple of them would like glance in my direction like chaplains standing there, and the offender would look at me and go, oh, sorry, Father, I didn't see you standing there. And I'd say, it's okay, son, just don't let it happen again. 
So sometimes just being there makes a difference. It's at least a start. But what makes more of a difference is our active involvement. When we can engage our culture, when we can infiltrate the very structures of our society and be the influence of Christ in those places, it makes a difference. God has positioned each one of us uniquely to do just that. We have people from this church who are little salt dispensers all over the area. It's a wonderful thing. Neighborhoods, big businesses, small businesses, schools, retail stores, apartment complexes, we have been distributed. Name the place, God has people positioned there. I remember a, a missionary map on the wall of a church I visited once. It had little bitty lights on it where they had missionaries that they supported. Now, picture in your mind a, a map of southern Wisconsin with little lights on it representing River Hillians. Uh, only this one's not fixed, it's, it's moving. When, when you move, those lights move. So right now, there's this one kind of bright spot here on Court Street on the map because we're all kind of concentrated here together. But when we leave here, we'll see those lights move on the map and they'll spread out all over the place. And in the middle of the week, if you looked at it, it would look differently than that because God has positioned us for influence in the culture that he's put us in. So, are we worth our salt? Are we living up to our identity? Well, ask yourself, what's the condition of the place where God has put you? Don't think globally just yet. Just focus on the place where God has put you for now, your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, your group of friends. Are you making a difference there? It's why he put you there. Now, do we always make a difference? I wish I could say we did. I believe Jesus knew we'd have varying degrees of success in holding back the decay that our culture is drifting naturally toward. And that's why he gave us not only a new identity, but he also gave us a warning. He says, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We can lose our taste. We can lose our saltiness. We can lose our distinctiveness. How do we know? How do we know if that's happening? It comes down to one key question. Am I making a difference where God has placed me? Am I making a difference in the lives around me? Is my influence as strong as it could be? Is it as strong as it needs to be? Is it as strong as it once was? What do we do when we realize we're really not making much of a difference? Let me suggest three questions that we can ask ourselves. Question one is, am I really salt? Am I really salt? There are a lot of people who grow up in a church and think they belong to Christ. They do churchy things. 
They were baptized at one time. They take communion sometimes. They pray every now and then. But the Sermon on the Mount even talks about people who do things in Jesus' name who never really knew Jesus. It's where he gets at the end of chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount and says to some people, away from me, I never really knew you. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and told them to examine themselves to see if they were really in the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves in this. Are you really a believer? So have you crossed that line? Are you really salt? And if you're in doubt of that, if you're uncertain of that, I would love to talk with you after the service is over about how you can know for sure. I believe assurance of salvation is a, a vital thing to have. Come see me, I'll hang out up here after the service. Question one, am I really salt? Question two, am I staying pure? Am I staying pure? Salt, N-A-C-L, is a very stable compound. Doesn't break down. There's only one way it can lose its saltiness and that is when it's mixed with other substances. It becomes impure. And in becoming impure, it loses its ability to be a preservative. The Apostle Paul warns us about mixing in such a way that the influence goes the wrong way. We are to be influencers, not influenced. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Don't be mixed in that way. It's a matter of which direction the influence is going. We're to infiltrate our culture, our society, in order to influence it. One of my favorite quotes from Chuck Swindoll is where he says, if you're working in your garden wearing white gloves, the dirt in your garden will not get glovey. Your white gloves will get dirty. It's a matter of which way the influence is going. And frankly, there are some situations we shouldn't even be around. You don't need to compromise in order to hang out with people. They don't need to agree with you. And if you're true to your calling, they will respect you for your stand. Am I really salt? Am I staying pure? Question three, am I getting out there? Am I getting out there or am I just content to stay in the salt shaker? Fellowship of the body of believers is a wonderful thing. It's comfortable here. It's a great thing to be here. But we need to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. Jesus commissioned us to go and make disciples in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. And as I've said before, the one active imperative there is to make disciples, but we can't do it if we don't go. There are so many opportunities to get involved in the lives of people around us, people who need the Lord. 
to infiltrate places for Christ and to spread his influence. One of them is two o'clock this afternoon. Opportunity to join less and get out and talk about Jesus. Find some way to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. Jesus has given us a new identity. We are salt and we are called to make a difference for him. Now, maybe you've answered those questions and you know you're salt and you know you're staying pure and you're getting out there and you're still not seeing results. What then? I would encourage you to take heart. Take heart and stay at it. Sometimes God withholds the evidence of results from our eyes so that we will learn to stay faithful even when we don't see that evidence of making a difference. Even when there is no reward, stay faithful. Think about the Roman Empire. At the time Jesus spoke these words, it was not a kind place. Women were considered a commodity and they weren't treated with respect and dignity. Babies were discarded if they were not what the parents wanted. Slaves were considered property and a man could do whatever he wanted to his slave. Might made right. Humility was considered a weakness. Revenge was valued more highly than forgiveness. And into that context, Jesus told a bunch of Jewish nobodies that they could change the world. He said, you're salt. You're salt. What if that never happened? What if Jesus had never said that? Or what if those he said it to said, oh no, not, not me. I could never do that. Who am I compared to the Roman Empire? But if they had said that, the brutality of the Roman Empire would have just gotten worse and worse as it continued to decay without preservative in it. Like rotting fish, it would have steadily become more corrupt. But instead, that bunch of nobodies salted the world. And by the year 800 AD, the Roman Empire declared itself Christian. And today, we remember the names of those nobodies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Timothy, and nobody cares who the emperor of Rome was. Think of your own experience. You are here today, probably, because at some time in your life, you came under the influence of a particularly salty Christian. Maybe that person seemed odd to you at first. Uh, their ways were so different from yours. But in time, you saw something in that person that you recognized that you wanted. And that person made a 100% difference in your life. And so you're called. And so I'm called to make a difference in somebody's life. To make a difference in the world by making a difference where God has placed us. Our neighborhood, our workplace, our group of friends. And we make a difference because we are salt, just living out who Jesus said we are.
He also said, we're light. We're light. Verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You're the light of the world. When I'm trying to describe a location in Wisconsin to somebody who doesn't know Wisconsin, I just hold up my hand. Here's where I live, Wausau, north central. Here's Janesville in the south. The thumb is Door County Peninsula. Now, the tip of the Door County Peninsula is, is a strip of water, a, a channel of, of water, a, a distance of water. And on the other side of that is Washington Island. Narrow channel. And that channel has been known for at least 300 years as Death's Door. That's where Door County gets its name, from Death's Door. It's called Death's Door because of the large number of shipwrecks that have taken place there. In order to cut some time and expense off of a trip from Green Bay around the peninsula and down to Chicago, people have cut through Death's Door, save time and expense. Often, it's been a tragic, even fatal error. The Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum lists about 6,000 shipwrecks in all of the Great Lakes. Three, I'm sorry, 30,000 lives lost in the Great Lakes. Half of those shipwrecks, 3,000 of them took place in Lake Michigan. Hundreds of them in death's door. And because of the number of shipwrecks there, 11 lighthouses were installed up and down the coasts of Door County. Tina and I enjoy visiting Door County. We've seen a number of lighthouses there. One of them that we enjoyed was the Cana Island Lighthouse. Took a tour of the Cana Island Lighthouse. And one memorable feature of that lighthouse was the light itself. Originally, the light came from a wick-fed lamp. That wick-fed lamp was eventually replaced by a light bulb. Neither the, that wick-fed lamp nor the light bulb was particularly bright, but they were set in the middle of a third-order Fresnel lens that magnified the light so that it could be seen as far as 18 miles away, limited only by the curvature of the earth. Did a little research on Fresnel lenses. I found they're still used today, anywhere from the windows of RVs to ceiling lights. Seen one of those? Anywhere you need to multiply the power of light. If you set it in a Fresnel lens, it will multiply that light because of the prisms in the Fresnel lens. 
So why the magnifying of light? Why set one of those on the coast of Door County? Would it be so that uh, it could shine a light on a ship so the captain can make entries into his ship's log at night? Of course not. Would it shine on the ship so that the sailors could play cribbage on deck at night? No. Would it shine in front of a ship so that it could see where it's going and not run into another ship? Not even that. The purpose, the first purpose of a lighthouse is to be seen. If a ship can't see the light of a lighthouse's beam, the lighthouse isn't doing what it was intended to do. Let's take a closer look at, at the text. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we look at this text, the first thing we should see is the conspicuous nature of the light. It's conspicuous, it's there to be seen. Jesus is talking about what happens when you are seen. Like a lighthouse, like a city set on a hill, like a lamp that's placed on a stand instead of under a basket. In the same way, he says, let your light shine. In other words, you be like that. Be conspicuous, be visible. We're gonna be seen. And what should people see when they see us? They see our good works. It's not what we're shining on, it's that we're shining. And you say, wait a minute, Ken. Aren't our good works supposed to be hidden? Haven't you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Look at chapter six. Okay, let's look at chapter six. Flip over chapter six, verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Notice a couple things. First, notice the focus. Jesus is warning us here in chapter 6, verse 1, about doing these things in order to be seen by others. And he goes on to talk about giving to the needy and praying and fasting. And the Pharisees had made an art of all of these things in order to be seen and look good, to be well-regarded. It was about them. And so when they gave, they blew trumpets. When they prayed, they did it at street corners and they waxed eloquent. When they fasted, they made themselves look like death warmed over. And Jesus says of that, okay, you've been seen, you've had your reward. You've been paid in full. But Jesus says we should be seen not to draw attention to ourselves, but to give glory to God in Matthew chapter five. That's our focus. They shouldn't see us. It's not about us. They should only see our good works. 
And notice the difference in words that Jesus uses. In chapter six, he's talking about practicing our righteousness in front of others, doing righteous works. And what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 16 is not righteous works, but good works. He uses the Greek word kalos, and that means good, beneficial, helpful, attractive, beautiful. So we're not here to show how righteous we are. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go out with girls that do, you know, sort of thing. We're here to do helpful things that draw people to God. What sorts of things, you might ask? Well, you don't have to look beyond the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to see behaviors that should characterize a Christ follower. In fact, uh, you don't have to leave chapter five. Look at the last section in chapter five where he speaks of love for our enemies. He says, uh, your father in heaven causes the sun to shine on the good and the bad, causes the rain to fall on both groups. In other words, everything that's needed for their crops, sunshine and rain, God gives to people regardless. So you love like that. Be indiscriminate in your giving of love because your father is. And you'll find that not a whole lot of people are doing that. That's pretty conspicuous. And who gets the glory? God does. People don't end up saying, isn't he a nice man? But what they say is, there's been a change in that guy since he met God. God's done some good work in him. I could tell you about a guy named Doug that I came to know a number of years ago. Doug was a businessman, a very successful businessman, doing what good businessmen do and doing it really, really well. And so he rose to the top of a large corporation and then his wife dragged him to church. And I met him and uh, in following up, I uh, talked to him and invited him to this orientation class that we were about to start and he about knocked me over when he came. When I, you know, it was at our house in those days and uh, I opened the door and there he and his wife were and I, I about fell over. And, and then uh, partway during that time, we were planning as a church to send a bunch of men to a Promise Keepers event and I invited him and I about fell over when he accepted my invitation. And he ended up rooming with me at that event and ultimately came to faith in Christ. And then God got a hold of this guy's heart and he just started to grow. And he joined our missions committee because he was concerned for other people hearing the gospel as well. And eventually he became chairman of our missions committee. And then when his corporation transferred him to the national headquarters, he took the light of Christ there. And then more recently, he called me on the phone and said, would you be willing to come with me to Kenya? I'm looking for someone to train pastors. I'm gonna be training some hospital administrators, but could you train some pastors? This guy, I, I look at that and go, God has done some amazing work in this guy. God has done it. He gets the glory. Now, wouldn't it be great if people spoke of you and me the same way. 
God has done some great work in that person. I don't know if you've noticed, but the evangelical image in the past few years hasn't been getting a whole lot better. Uh, we're not treated very well by the media. It's not much of an honor to be called an evangelical these days here. How do people see us? Narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, judgmental? How did we get there? I think to a large degree it's because we have focused on our righteous acts more than on our good acts. We've got a reputation for being judgmental instead of being helpful. How can we turn that around? I believe we can do it by living up to what Jesus says we are. We are salt and we are light. Salt is about getting out there, out of the salt shaker, dispersed into the world, infiltrating the structures around us and being preservative agents, influences for Christ in the places where he has put us. And light is what happens when we get out there. People see Christ in us. He motivates us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do. And that's attractive. And God gets the glory for what he's done in us. Salt results in the world being preserved. Light results in God being glorified. When our kids were growing up, Every morning when they left the house for school, we always sent them out with the same words. Let your light shine. Let me give you a little homework assignment. Get out of the salt shaker this week and into one place that's not dominated by believers and let your light shine. Find one practical need that you can meet, a good work, not necessarily a righteous one, one that points to God. Meet that need. And if someone responds by saying, thank you, you are so nice, here's what you say. You should have seen me before Jesus got a hold of me. How about that? It's not about you. We need to deflect that to the one who caused that. You should have seen me before he got a hold of me. It's, it's about him. If we did that, we'd be living up to our identity. What Jesus said we are, salt, and light, and just imagine the glory that would go to God. Let's pray together. Father, Jesus has defined well what we are to be. He's given us an identity as salt and as light. 
And I pray that we would live up to that identity. And I pray that you would help us this week to find ways in which we can do that, very practical ways that we can step out into a place where Jesus isn't known and be that influence and be that light and share the reason for the hope that we have for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.